this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, who would have thought that in one game the U.S. women's national team would score over four times as many points as the Rams did in the Super Bowl? The 49ers sure dodged that hard knocks bullet yet again. It'll be the Oakland Raiders this year. And with me this week, to elegantly walk us through all of the physics of an RBMK nuclear reactor, it's David Newman. Look, guys, there's supposed to be an equal number of red and blue, and right now there's a hell of a lot more red than there is blue, and that's a problem. Which basically sums up the entirety of USA Thailand, because there was a whole lot more red than there was blue nice. in that game. Uh, yeah, they're, quick hot take. 13-0, to zero, should the U.S. women's national team have backed off? No. Doesn't, I mean, I, I saw like bits and pieces of this whole thing on, on Twitter. Like I haven't watched any of it or anything like that. D- point or goal differential like plays a role in yeah seeding and stuff like that, right? It does. Yeah, no. So of course you don't. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And yeah, I think, I think much to, to the women's national team credit, they said the right thing. They said, no, it would have been patronizing to sit there and play takeaway from them. Yeah. Like, also to, they're professionals. Like it's that whole thing. Yeah. Like if you don't want them to score, then yeah. maybe you should stop them. There's a really good article. in I think the ringer talking about how the problem is not with the 13 to zero score, but how a team like Thailand even makes it to the world cup. Because there's structural issues with women's soccer that allowed something like that to happen. And if countries were to invest more in their women's sports, then you wouldn't have something like that. But right. um, the other thing I wanted to quickly talk about before we get to the rundown is, man, can we talk about Canadians just destroying fandom stereotypes with like the speed of a Thanos snap of Kevin Durant's Achilles? Because it's game six tonight. We're recording this relatively early for our taste because I sure. want to watch the game. Uh, and and so it it like... How, how are Canadians are supposed to be the nice fans? How are they going to sit there and cheer for a man that's clearly injured? Now we know, of course, has a ruptured Achilles. And, and they were even yelling at Steph Curry's mom after the game. I mean, it is a strong break from stereotype. We'll say that. But maybe secretly Canadians are just all a bunch of assholes. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think that's probably it. I think, yeah. you know, all, now, the other thing you've got to tell us is why you're drinking hot water out of a mug right now. It's tea. Um, yeah, if you can't tell, uh, not exactly at 100% right now from a health standpoint. Been dealing with the cold. So I apologize for the nasally terrible sounding voice that you're going to have to deal with for like 45 minutes. Y'all, David minimum, Newman but. doesn't just sit in a dark cave and watch football all day. He This is what I get for going outside. Yeah, he goes outside for like 25 seconds. And this is what happens. you know. And he's putting his life on the line right now for you. Yeah. It's a struggle. This is my Jordan flu game this- right here. <laughs> Just want you guys to know. <laughs> All right. Well, Jordan flu game it is. Let's get to the rundown because minicamp is officially done and we're relatively injury free, except for, of course, the annual bone break from Jimmy Ward, which technically happened in OTAs. So minicamp relatively injury free. Jimmy Garoppolo took one count it one full 11 on 11 snap. The defensive linemen were not supposed to rush the passer. They did anyway, because that's what defensive linemen do. So Kyle Shanahan promptly takes them off the field. <laughs> nice. I like the approach. Yeah. Let's, who cares? Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's keep him upright until at least training camp. Exactly. Uh, so he'll now, of course, Jimmy Garoppolo will be working with Tom House in Southern California, as well as bringing a couple of receivers with him. How much money do you think Tom House makes from all of the quarterbacks that he helps in the offseason? I'm going to say more than he's worth. Yeah, it's, that's, that's a lot. Because, I mean, Tom Brady has paid him lots of money and continues to pay him money. Alex Smith has paid him money. Uh, and now Jimmy Garoppolo has paid him money. 
I feel like Philip Rivers has worked with him. I feel like he's worked with just he's about worked, yeah. I mean, with so many people, it's it's such a weird industry too. The whole the whole quarterback like training industry is like yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm sure, and obviously he seems to be one of the actual good ones, getting all of these like top NFL quarterbacks to be able to go and train with him. Um, obviously, there has to be at least some sort of value that uh, that he's convincing these guys that he's providing there. But yeah, the whole thing is just like super shady there's a lot of like bad shit out there with that hey man I don't know. how am i it's gonna weird. get how am i gonna get my nine-year-old uh, yeah. scholarship to usc if not for tom house is really I what mean, i want to know fair so during minicamp and otas there's really not a lot to bring you they're not in pads the, the reporters can't even see a lot of the sessions but it's always interesting who is up in reps who's with the first team who's with the second team that's probably what you can take away from this and especially early on in training camp what you should take from that as well couple of tidbits about the mini camp that have come out over the last couple of days. One, Sherman, Richard Sherman was out due to an NFLPA engagement or uh, something along those lines. And Greg Maben took the first team snaps in Sherman's absence. Of course, you've got the injured or recovering Jason Verrett, uh, who's injured. And so he couldn't be out there. But interesting that Greg Maben just can't just can't quit him. Just can't quit him. It's fine, though. The cornerback depth is fine. Yeah. Uh, and Tarverius Moore which I think is also interesting, stayed with the safeties despite the lack of depth of the cornerback position, which leads me to think that at least this year, the team is kind of committed to him playing safety. Right, which again, I think is good. Um, I, I don't think there's any purpose to moving him only to move him back unless it's like an absolute dire situation, right? This is like Mike McGlinchey moving to guard because we have no guards left type of thing. Yep. Um, you know, that, that scenario is like the only thing that you should move him away from safety if that's what you want to commit him to because it just it doesn't do him any good from a development standpoint to bounce him back and forth. Like, if you think that, okay, maybe we made a mistake moving him to corner, we're going to bite that bullet after one year, let him stick at safety, like, that's fine. Just keep him there. Marquise Goodwin says he wants to compete in the Tokyo Games as a long jumper. David, are you concerned at all? No. Yeah, I'm not either. The only thing, I guess, is that if he does make it, he would miss. I think it conflicts with like the first piece of training camp or like a trial or some kind of maybe competition uh, competes with that. But um, whatever, man. As long as he doesn't get injured, I, I really couldn't care less. Yeah, I think especially like in this situation, um, it's it's like... It's not like he's new to the team, right? This is his third year in the offense, so, you know... It, Obviously, it's never you, you want to have those reps if you can, right? It's it's great, doesn't hurt anything. But for a veteran player, obviously, he's going to be staying in shape. Uh, yeah, he's going to be working out. So, I mean, that's not going to be an issue. Uh, yeah, I don't think that there's there's much there that he's going to miss from like installing the offense and stuff like that. You miss out on some some reps with Jimmy and stuff like that that might help with timing or whatever. But I think you can make that stuff up. It's not a big deal. Final story is that Robbie Gold won't be at minicamps and the team is unsure when he will rejoin the team. He could just waltz in like on Thursday before week one and be like, cool, I'm here. And I, honestly, I think you should have just left it as as you have the note in here. The team is unsure. <laughs> uh, I am also just unsure. I, I don't mind if any one position can come in with just like a few days, like a few days with the team, maybe like cigarette in mouth and have an impact. It's probably a kicker. Yeah, I don't even care if he shows up all that much, TBH. Yeah, I know. You're, you're, you've been out on kicker since we franchised him. Just go for it on fourth down. <laughs> Honestly, who needs a kicker? <laughs> we'll get there soon, David Newman. We'll get there soon. But now we get to what we're going to actually talk about this episode. And we're entering into the NFL dead zone where people who cover the NFL take vacation. 
<laughs> and those of us who don't take vacation or perhaps already took it need to find things to talk about. So we thought it'd actually be fun not to, you know, kind of find some rando hot take to discuss, but actually to go back into the archives and take a look at some of the historical games that were either important to us and or games that we wanted to take a look at from NFL from 49ers history specifically. And the first one that came to mind was the 1994 NFC Championship game. This game for me was a really, really fun game. I remember lots of things about this game. I don't remember nearly as much as I thought I did. Um, yeah. But it was definitely sure. a fun game, and it was the game where one of my favorite players, Steve Young, finally got over the Dallas Cowboys hump. So I thought, why the hell not? The game's on YouTube. And, uh, and so we went back and rewatched it, and, and now we kind of help break that down uh, or break that game down here for you. It's, it's wild, man. It's going back and like, I mean, I was seven years old when this game was played first. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, not exactly uh, on top of things. And, and so being able to go back and like watch these old games with the knowledge that you have now is, is such a different experience. Like the things that you remember, even being just a kid, like you're so different right like uh as we'll talk about like jerry rice was not very good in this game that like blew my goddamn mind yeah. uh going back because this is not a thing that you really like remember yeah um, jerry rice never ever dropped a pass in his life yeah no it's not a thing that happened i can't even couldn't even believe they let him into the hall of fame after the first half of this game dude for me it was the i i, I remember that game as just about a blowout. Like, I don't remember Dallas ever really being in that game. And there were several instances in which they were clawing their way back and things could have taken a turn, really, and not in the 49ers' favor. I think for, like, maybe the final, like, at minimum for about the final three, maybe even, like, three and a half quarters, it was at at minimum even. And, and like, you could probably make a solid argument that Dallas played quite a bit better over that stretch, but it was just such a an uphill battle to overcome. So why was this game so important? Why was it such a seminal part of 49ers history? Well, you have to put the 1994 season in context. And really, the 1994 season was all about beating the Dallas Cowboys. The Cowboys were back-to-back champions in both years. They dispatched the 49ers in the playoffs. In 1992, the Niners were 14-2 and and lost 30-20 to to Dallas at home. This was the game that Steve Young spends a lot of time in his... Uh, autobiography on. He doesn't spend a ton of time on the 94 game uh, and, and even the 93 game. It was this 92 game that really like chapped his ass, so to speak, <laughs> if, if he would say such a thing, although those words would never leave his mouth. In 1993, they traveled to Dallas, suffered another defeat. And, and really at that point, the rivalry was at a fever pitch. A lot of the defenders during that game wore shirts that said, fuck Dallas to the stadium. And Steve Young yelled at them and ordered them to take the shirts off. We don't use that kind of language. Well, he didn't want to no, give them more bulletin board material. Yeah. Because apparently Charles Haley made it a mission to kill Steve Young every time they played the Niners. And he didn't want to die. I mean, fair. I can't blame him for that. Uh, yeah, it was... It was, uh, it was they, they weren't exactly like in a position to be like talking all that shit at yeah. this point, right? So the Niners geared up and they went out and effectively bought a defense. There were 27 new players on the 49ers roster for the 1994 season. And this was just the beginning of the free agent era. So this was one of the the few times where player movement was actually able to happen. Deion Sanders was signed two games into the 94 season. I forgot that he didn't start the year with the Niners. Same. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, right. I forgot. Because he was playing baseball. Right. Yeah, and so, see, again, Marquise Goodwin, you can do, you can do the Olympics, go man. Go do your thing. Yeah, go do your thing. Uh, Ken Norton uh, from the Cowboys, of course. Ricky Jackson from the Saints, another player I had forgotten. He was with the Dome Patrol, 
and he's just out here with the Niners. Fun fact about him, his base salary was $162,000. He would have gotten, and he did receive, an $838,000 bonus for winning the NFC Championship game. That is a wild bonus structure. Can you believe that? As a player saying, like, you're, I'm actually going to put that in a contract. How confident do you have to be that the team is even going to get there, Right. let alone win that game? Yeah, that's insane. It was like seven times his, his salary for the entire season yeah. from this one game. Gary Plummer, Richard Dent from the Bears. Uh, I mean, they basically came out and said we part of the reason they couldn't beat the Cowboys wasn't because of the offense. It was because of the defense. And, and so they went out and they bought a defense. And early on in the season, it wasn't all roses. He had Joe Montana versus Steve Young in week two. Of course, Joe Montana was with the Chiefs at this point. Joe Montana beats Steve Young. Dude, I do remember as like a kid being so conflicted about oh, that yeah. game. It was just like you grow up and, you know, my dad was a huge 49ers fan. And so you, he was like more Joe Montana era guy, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you like, you hear all these stories like Joe Montana's like your hero, whatever. Like he's the greatest thing that's ever existed. And then all of a sudden he's like not with the Niners anymore. And he's like on this other team and you're just like a kid trying to figure out who do I root for here? Yeah, it was, it was wild. Yeah. I was very much very pro Steve Young. I was like, yeah. I had missed the whole Joe Montana thing. I, I mean, I, I, I liked the Niners and obviously my first Niners shirt was a Joe Montana shirt, but I was all in on Steve Young. I was like, man, get out of here. Go be a chief. Do You're that. old. Yeah. It was one of those things where I was like, man, like I guess my, my cold heart really started to develop then. I was like, man, you got to let him go a year early. Better than a year early than a year late. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I can, oh, I can imagine God. myself as like a child of nine. Just, yeah. well, better early. Um, but the, the real clincher for the season, especially the early part, or the real shitty part of the season, was week five against Philadelphia. That was the turning point of the season because the Niners got completely destroyed in that game. So much so that Seifert, the head coach, pulled Steve Young, something Young took very, very personally, and proceeded to let everyone know just vociferously yelling at everyone. Deion Sanders had to hold him back. Um, I mean, this was like a turning point for Steve Young and the team. I love that they showed in the broadcast like clips of Young uh, yeah. screaming at Kubiak on yeah. the sideline, uh, which was just great. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's funny to see some of those coaches because right? Kubiak, yeah, and of course Mike Shanahan, the elder Shanahan, and, and Seifert. Um, it, it's interesting to see how those legacies and those people have kind of grown since then. Um, but fun fact about that game. There was a running back who made his debut for 111 yards and a touchdown for the Philadelphia Eagles. Name that running back. Future 49er. Future 49er. Oh. Not Brian Westbrook, but the guy that was Westbrook-like before yes. Westbrook. And yep. I can't think of his name. Number 25. Ah. Was also an, a, a Raider. Oh, my God. It's going to drive me crazy. Tell me. Charlie Garner. There you go. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that game was uh, pretty much a disaster for the 49ers. Uh, at that point, when uh, I think when, when Shats from Football Outsiders did the DVOA for this game, uh, much, much after 1994, but that was like top five single worst DVOA games uh, it, for like in history. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. It was real bad. So that was the turning point for the season, though, and the Niners really rallied around that loss and proceeded to just basically kick everyone's ass for the rest of the year. They scored 505 points, which led the NFL. They finished 13-3, and which was the best record in the NFL. They had to face Dallas during the regular season, and they won behind a couple of Burton Hanks interceptions. Uh, if they had DVOA in 1994, they didn't. But Aaron Schatz for Football Outsiders does a great job, and he kind of puts the stats through his algorithms and gives us DVOA. 
the team would have finished first in offensive DVOA and sixth in defensive DVOA. And Steve Young's quarterback rating was, at the time, the single best season mark uh, for quarterback rating in NFL history. So overall, it was a great season. And yet, the team was still hell-bent on beating Dallas. And the rumor was, if Seifert didn't beat Dallas, he would have been fired. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's like what happens when you get to teams that you know expect to compete for championships year in, year out. And I think it was a lot easier to do that when you're a team you know it was easier to sustain success I think back then right you know we're, we're right at the start of free agency kind of changing some of that stuff but up to that point you could really build these teams that were so much better than everybody else and and be able to keep a lot of those guys around and so it was easier to sustain that and like that's the difference right you you're there and you're one of the best teams in the NFL every year but you're losing you know short of the ultimate goal and like yeah that it it makes sense it's wild to think that like that's the standard that they get held to uh because it's just like pretty unrealistic uh you Come know on, that you're gonna Jen, find somebody we, we don't hang uh division yeah. banners we hang we hang super bowl banners that's what we're here for them. yeah <laughs> uh yeah it, it's wild though but yeah i mean i very much like remember so you know i grew up uh without a team nearby, right? So I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. So there's not like a hometown team. So you tend to get like kids basically root for the good teams that are there. So it was like 49ers fans, Cowboys, you had some Packers fans in there. Like all the big Steelers were were pretty big, right? All of the big, huge uh, kind of teams are the, the ones that kids root for. And so it was like, yeah, a lot of like some of my, my worst days that I remember at school were like going and having to talk to Cowboys fans, like after the Niners lost in 92 and 93, right. As like this little grade school kid, uh, it sucks. Yeah. So you like, you remember like wanting so badly to fucking beat them. Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I, I like the the people around me were mourning when they would lose, and they would be like exalted when, or they would be excited when they won. So I, I didn't have to worry about that kind of fan cross pollination because it was like you were a Niner fan if you were in that area. I, I was, I have a cousin who's four years younger than me, uh, and I used to basically bully him and beat him up, uh, and he became a Cowboys fan specifically to spite me. Because I used to basically uh, give him so much shit. And he's still a Cowboys fan to this day. Wow. Uh, yeah. Good work. Yeah. Shout out to Cousin Hugo. He's, he's, not, <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, we interact every now and again on Twitter. It's, uh, yeah, he's good. Love that. Love him to death. But yeah, I bullied him into being a Cowboys fan. And I will, I will almost always regret that. Not, uh, not the best move. Yeah. I mean, really, the stage was set for the game. Steve Young said, and in, in I think they did an America's game for that 1994 season, he said, I quote, there is no one else in the league other than the Cowboys. Like they were fixated on beating the Cowboys. And that was the game. That was the atmosphere. This was the thing the Niners had to do this season to finally get over the hump. So we watched the game. We watched the TV tape. Couldn't get all 22. Unfortunately. Yeah, still waiting on the all 22. Still one. waiting on so the all 22. Take all these conclusions with a grain of salt. So we're going to break down the game much like we do the games during the regular season. We're going to talk about the, any impressions, things we think. We're going to talk about some turning points or any strategic decisions that we thought were important. A player of the game. We're going to wrap it up with some quick hits and maybe the long-term aftermath of the game. But before we get to that, let's take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. All right, so it's game day. It's game day. It's a balmy 50 degrees in San Francisco. It's rain for a couple of days, and Steve Young may not actually play. That's the first thing I thought was super interesting. You read in his book that Richard Dent collided with Steve Young during their final walkthrough, and apparently 
it made his neck swell up and he lost all mobility in his neck. Those fucking defensive linemen, man. It's like we were talking about with Jimmy. Can't listen, can't listen to the rules, all right? You don't fuck with the quarterback. Rule number one. He needed to get an injection. Uh, he said it was four milliliters of a powerful anti-inflammatory or whatever. Man, it could have been heroin. I don't care. But he, he played, and, and that's, it's pretty amazing that he almost didn't. Right. I had no idea. Like, this was something that I had never heard before. And so, yeah, when you brought that up um, from, from the book, that was wild. I mean, what happened? Like, what do we think of Steve Young now if he isn't able to play in this game and they lose, right? Like, that's, yeah, that's exactly what he said in his book. He's like, I was this close to not playing. And what would his legacy, what would he as a player be known for if he could never get over the hump against Dallas, if he didn't win a ring, yep. if he would have retired as a result of concussions? I mean, it's, it's pretty wild how this one game and then the eventual Super Bowl win really defined his legacy and defined him as a player. And he was a Richard Dent sore neck away from not playing. Yeah, that's wild. Wild, yeah. man. All right, so first thing we think, I mean, when you, when you watch the offense on tape, the offense to me was simultaneously, the 49ers offense, was simultaneously advanced in a lot of ways and yet firmly within its time. I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, because you see, I mean, this was like NFL-wide, you know, right there at, at around like the height of the West Coast offense being not just, for, obviously, 49ers have been doing it for a long time at this stage, but it, as far as like some of the other coaches from the 49ers staff you in the 80s Holmgren spreading out. Green Bay, yeah. uh, and you've got Brett Favre, of course, and they were very good. They were in the playoffs that yep. year. You've got... Uh, the, the Niners, of course, and, and this is the beginning of the proliferation of that system. Yeah, you're starting to get to the point where, like, you know, most of the teams in the league are running some version of this offense, essentially, right? Um, and, and so it was very much that, you know, you're under center every single snap. I don't think we saw, you know, a single snap from shotgun in this nope. game. Uh, you get all of the old school, like West coast backfield. So it's, it's not a lot of like straight eye stuff or, or anything like that. You got the split backs, you got the far and near sets. Uh, and it's just, it's funny. It's like, it's like looking uh, at a, one of the Madden playbooks, right? They, they always had the West Coast playbook, and you would get all these formations in there. I mean, that's exactly what it was. And it was just uh, it was funny to see the run game uh, back then was, was so much different, like looks so much different than what you would see on a Sunday today. But like you mentioned, there were definitely still some elements that you could notice and point to that like, oh, wow, they're they're being pretty aggressive for this time or they're doing some things that like make a lot of sense that we see teams do now still. And so, uh, yeah, still still advanced in some ways for sure. Well, you look at just the first play of the game. The first play of the game looked like almost like an RPO. I mean, you've got that's that pro set with the split backs, which still looks super funny. And they fake the power run, and then Steve Young immediately opens up and hits a backside slant. And, I mean, it wasn't an RPO because it was yeah. a defined play-action pass, but it looked very much like it would now with a quick read and a quick hit. And, they, I mean, they came out humming, and there were other plays like that throughout the game that, like, looked RPO-ish, even yeah. though they weren't. Yeah, I mean, you, you know that they obviously aren't, um, but it was, yeah, I think the one that stuck out to me the most was they, there was a QB draw that they would run, and uh, I think they did it like three times, I remember, in this game. Once uh, was early on, Young set up William Floyd, like one-yard touchdown run. A second one was kind of a disaster, uh, and, and he tried to, he like, 
the lane closed up on him and he tried to like flip it out to Brent Jones and almost went very poorly and then scored touchdown uh, the last time that they ran it. But yeah, it was so from the receivers, you would get just a normal route concept, right? They would just, they were running patterns, trying to sell the pass. You get uh, the offensive line really pass protecting. You can see them really trying to make sure to seal off the inside. Cause you know that that quarterback draws coming, but really trying to sell the pass as well. Uh, and then young, yeah, basically getting to pull it. And it just, it, the one time he got in trouble and tried to flip it out. It's like, Oh wow. Maybe, maybe they were like trying to make a decision based on something. I, it would be almost certainly like a pre-snap decision, but then, yeah, you mentioned that this is actually one of the things that he mentions. The other thing he mentions from this game in the book about how this was, you know, defined quarterback draw the whole way. And, and basically they're just like really trying to sell the pass and it, it worked. Yeah, Steve Young specifically in the huddle on that touchdown run, he screams, sell the pass, like at his huddle, like sell the pass. So, But it still very much looks like something that you would see nowadays, especially with the option quarterbacks that you see now. I was honestly surprised at how often they ran Steve Young with actual called quarterback runs. And he had a couple of scrambles and he had a couple rollouts and boots and stuff like that. But one, I was surprised at how fast he was. Dude was quick. Like, I forgot how amazing he was when he broke out in the open field when yeah. compared to everyone else. And he was running, like, I mean, they were running in a mud pot is basically what that was. That field, Oh, my God, the field was a disaster. It was awful. Uh, and yet it, the offense looked, it looked really, really kind of, like, really great in a lot of ways. Um, and then you see them run, run the ball, and it was weird. Yeah. The other part that seemed really advanced to me was their fourth down decision making. The 49ers were incredibly aggressive on fourth down, more so than I would have expected from a team in the 90s and it paid off because it sustained drives. There were two times they went for first downs where they converted and they were able to sustain drives that I don't know that some coaches now would actually have gone for fourth down in the same Seriously. situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, uh, I mean, this was early, right? So you had on their, uh, essentially their first drive because you had the Eric Davis pick six that kind of kicked things off. And then once, uh, they get the ball for the first time on offense, this was what set up that that fourth down conversion. The first one was what set up their eventual touchdown uh, past Ricky Waters. But yeah, going for it uh, on fourth and two there. And then there was another one, I think, in the second quarter um, where they also went for it on on fourth down to set up. But yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's it was weird to see. I like didn't really expect a lot of that type of stuff going back and watching a game from 25 years ago. I mean, you're still begging teams to be more aggressive in those situations now and so you you would expect people to be really conservative but this was actually something which uh is another random point from this game how good john madden is john madden was fucking awesome john madden's great and and i thought that he, he was he he towed that line between like kind of jovial idiot and also was really good at and think about how the technology must have been back then but he yeah. would Im- immediately see something they would pull it up on the replay. He would describe it with the teleprompter. And I mean, it was he was doing it faster and seamlessly uh, than a lot of announcers can do it now. Yeah, and, the, yeah, he was amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, the ability to like diagnose that stuff, one, is is obviously very difficult to do in a live game situation. But then, yeah, just that ability to be able to... He comes off almost, you know, like he talks yeah. very casually about it, comes off like he's just kind of some big goofball in a lot of ways, but is it like explains, bombs. yeah, like X's and O type stuff, like why things are happening in a very easy to understand way. And it was, it was so because you kind of, 
you can forget a little bit, right? He wasn't exactly yeah. at the top of his game by the end of his run there, and and I think well, he kind of people and and they became he became almost a joke of himself yes. for the like the boom and and the yeah. the pointing out the obvious, like man, whoever scores the most points wins the game, right? Boom, <laughs> you know, like that that was that was what he became. It was a caricature of himself, yeah. but in the in the eighties and, and early nineties, especially, he was like peak announcer. That was how you knew like it was a big game. Yeah. Right, it was like, oh man, Madden's calling this game. Yeah. Like, yeah, this is gonna be awesome. But yeah, he he had, uh, did like such a great job pointing that stuff out and and being able to like um, draw attention to key parts of the plays. And so yeah, I thought that was just really interesting going back and seeing kind of a, a peak Madden game. So second quarter, about nine minutes left, the Niners run a play uh, where they just leave the ends unblocked. It was a run play. They leave the ends completely unblocked. And Ricky Waters actually breaks this for a long run. This is one of the, the run game quirks that I noticed where I'm like, would that ever happen now? No. Like, you leave a backside end unblocked nowadays, but would you ever leave both ends unblocked and try to run a run up the middle? No. no. So this was one of the things that's weird about the run game, like the West Coast run game like that is, is so uh, the backs the depth of the backs is a lot shallower, right? So usually you're getting, you know, if you think in like an I formation or something like that, back is aligned at, at typically like a depth about seven, eight yards or so. So you think quarterback is about five yards, four or five yards in shotgun, depending on what teams want to go back would be a few yards behind that. And so, yeah, you can't do things like that because it's, it's too much time for the back to be able to get to the line of scrimmage and through there and those ends will just destroy him. Right. And so in these sets though, they're so close. They're up there at that like four or five yard depth that you can have those quick hitting runs. And that was such a big part of their run game where these kind of like quick inside handoffs um, to that, that were kind of like trap esque, but weren't actually trapping anybody. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of like one of those things like you don't see anyone. No one does that stuff today. So the offense looked in some ways very advanced for its time. Uh, in some ways you would look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, it's definitely 1994. <laughs> um, like I was old, when you watch the the first Niners Super Bowl, you see the wide receivers lining up in a three point stance. Oh, man. I was like half expecting Not the wide receiver to line up in a three point stance. But the, the other thing I think that was interesting is that the 49ers offense in this game wasn't all that great. You mentioned the, the Jerry Rice drop touchdown, which, you know, we've all expunged that from our memory. But John Taylor had two drops. At halftime, the Niners were up big, but Steve Young was only 9 for 20 for 117 yards. This Cowboys defense was one of the best defenses in the league that year. And if they had DVOA back then, they would have been the single best defense in the NFL that year. And the Niners offense was having trouble were it not for those early turnovers. I mean, they scored three times in the first seven minutes of the game. And, and were it not for those two early turnovers, an interception from Eric Davis and then a forced fumble, uh, I don't know whether or not the Niners win this game. Right. It's so weird to, to balance like, okay, they clearly went, you know, especially in the second half, you're going to more of a conservative, like you really get to that four minute offense back then a hell of a lot earlier than four minutes, right? you like, they, they're going to it like in most of the second half, it felt like where you're just trying to kind of grind out the clock and, and, and waste time there. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, you look at even Young's, you mentioned the first half numbers, his final numbers, like there are almost certainly people out there now that are maybe even our age that like look at this box score that don't remember it and like, wow, Steve Young was terrible. 
in this game. How did they win this game? He was 13 of 29 for 155 and two touchdowns. Jesus. Um, like not a glamorous box score at all. And you look and you see Aikman put up nearly 400 yards, had two touchdowns, over 50 pass attempts. Looks a lot more like uh, a line that you would see today. And, and so, yeah, it was just wild. I mean, he had a number of things though, that like hurt those, those numbers, right? Like you mentioned the drops, Rice had two of them. Taylor had two of them. Like there was things that could have made that stuff look a lot better. Like he, he was far more efficient than what that line showed, but it was just like, it certainly isn't the game. If you were going to point to and like show somebody like who had never watched Steve Young play football and say like, why was, show me why Steve Young was great. Right. You're not really going to show them this game. Nope. Um, you show them the Super Bowl. Yep. You show them the Super Bowl. Super Bowl is a great one for that for sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he made the the throw that he made to Rice like up the left sideline for a touchdown was was fantastic. Was the best he throw in the entire down. game. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise, like the offense, and, and again, it's hard to separate how much of this was just a product of of game situation and their philosophy back then that was pretty universal of just like trying to grind that stuff out and how much it was them just not really able to be super efficient and productive consistently on offense. Yeah. So I, th- I think that if you set aside the 49ers offense for a second and you look at what was happening on the other side of the football, the other thing I think that really stood out to me in this game is that Troy Aikman had one hell of a game. He was dealing at various points throughout this game. And, and I thought that if you were to take this single game and, and I think you mentioned it, if you take this single game in a vacuum, I think Aikman outplayed young and, yeah. and I thought that he had overall a better game through the air. I think if you add what they did on the ground, Steve Young had a couple of first downs that he ran for, and he yeah. added value in the running game, for sure. which I think, you know, overall, that was, that was Steve Young's game. That's why he was as good as he was. But I had forgotten how good Aikman was, kind of like how late John Madden makes you forget how good early John Madden yeah. was. I feel like Troy Aikman now because of how much I dislike how he calls games sure. <laughs> makes me like dislike him as a player, but he was, he, he was amazing this game. Uh, it's, it's really funny. I was actually like primed to go in expecting to come away, like saying, Oh man, Aikman was not as good as we remember. Right. Yeah. Cause there's kind of been a lot of that. There was a big thing a, a while back, uh, you know, what a few weeks ago now or something like that, where a big portion of Twitter was like going on about how Aikman wasn't a hall of famer, like shouldn't have been a hall of famer and like comparing his his numbers essentially to like really shitty quarterbacks now, which is, is problematic for other reasons. But you know, I think, I think there's like on its face, you can, if you don't like actually go back and, and watch him all that much, um, you can construct a pretty easy argument that like, yeah, maybe Aikman wasn't as good as we thought, right? He's obviously surrounded by, had one of the best offensive lines in NFL history at that point, um, had a Hall of Fame running back, Hall of Fame receiver to throw to, had dominant defenses behind him. So yeah, like maybe maybe there was a situation where he was just kind of getting carried by those guys, right? Yeah. Wasn't really one of the primary drivers of that success. Um, but at least in this game, man, he was, he was on fire. He had that, it it was a horrible pick six, horrible first drive. But after that dude was dealing, um, just eating in the intermediate area, like all game. So one of the things the Niners did initially was really, really smart. They of course had the first game against Dallas and they played their defense one way, but by the time they got to the NFC championship game, they switched their coverage up and Instead of playing Deion Sanders on Michael Irvin or keeping their corners on one side or the other, they basically had Deion Sanders on Harper, Alvin Harper, their second receiver. 
And they double teamed Michael Irvin with their safety and Eric Davis and basically had uh, a bracketed coverage on Michael Irvin and then let Deion Sanders do his thing and eliminate another receiver on the other side of the field. And that initially threw, I think, Dallas for a loop. And, and eventually Dallas figured that out. And Sanders did eventually cover Irvin on a few snaps throughout the game. But that was a really, really smart tweak, I thought, from the 49ers defense that I think really threw Dallas off initially because they couldn't go to their reads. Sanders was so good that he eliminated whatever receiver he was covering. And I think double teaming Irvin was the right call. Um, and, and I think that was something that really helped initially put the game so far out of reach that that offensive sputtering uh, wasn't as big of an impact. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, that was definitely one of my bigger takeaways was how good the defense was overall in this game. I think there were some things in coverage, you know, that were, that were problematic outside of Dion, I would say, but like overall the defense, you know, played really well. Uh, the run, like Emmett Smith was not very good in this game. Like they really kind of shut him down for most of it. He had a couple of short touchdown runs, whatever, and then ripped off some larger runs that kind of padded those overall numbers. And also late. maybe his hamstring. Sure. <laughs> he uh, ripped off some runs at his and hamstring. his hamstring. Uh, yeah. And, and so like, you know, they, they did a great job up front there against that, you know, again, really dominant Dallas offensive line. Um, but yeah, the Dion stuff was, was super interesting. Um, Cause it's, I think it's like a reasonable argument. You've seen teams do it both ways, right? Do you put your best corner on their best receiver and then trust that hopefully your guy is, is better and can kind of win the majority of those matchups. And then you can really take away, you know, it's going to be much easier to take away that number two guy. If you've got two guys over there, like he's gone. Right. Um, or do you put your best one on, you know, I think uh, the jets used to do this with Revis yeah. a lot as they would put Revis on, uh, and even when he was uh, on on the Patriots for that season, like they would put him on the number two guy essentially, and then really rotate coverage away from him and, and kind of trust that he's going to be able to just lock things down on that one side. Um, but Irvin, I mean, he made him, he made him pay quite a bit, he uh, did. even though he was getting a lot of attention over there. So first of all, how do you, as Eric Davis and the safety who uh, toy cooks, Man, I would not have remembered totally. that. If you- Literally, as I was uh, typing notes going through this game, I wrote, Irvin roasted Eric Davis and whoever the hell number 41 is. Like, yeah. had no had no recollection of this. No time. idea. But how, how do you, in a bracketed coverage, let Irvin, who is not exactly a speedster, just blow right by both players, split them, and catch that touchdown? That Dallas first, Dallas's first touchdown. Yeah, man. Uh, not a great look. Not a no. great look for our guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, they, they tried to throw, I mean, it wasn't even a great fake necessarily from Irvin. Like you get the pump from Aikman. They trying to sell a double move, trying to sell the, cause Dallas really, um, you know, one of the routes that they're known for that you hear, I think they called it like the bang eight, right. Is what you hear. So it's that yeah. quick post. Um, you'll hear teams call it now, like it more of like a glance route. Uh, and so, but it's, it's really throwing right at the break on the post quickly. Right. And so they run that a lot. Irvin caught several passes like on that same route in this game. And this was basically faking that and then having him stem vertically again and go through it. And they just bought hard on like that little in fake. And and that was enough to let Irvin who, yeah, again, is like not a speedster uh, by any means, not running by a lot of guys, but he just blew by him. And they were in off coverage too. It wasn't like they were up on the line. I mean, they had a good 10. I think Eric Davis was 12 yards off the line of scrimmage and cooks was something like 15 to 17 
and and they still they still couldn't do it. So yeah, I mean, it was essential. That was one of the plays. It was it was funny because the camera angles are so bad, uh, and so this was one where you got actually a good all twenty two replay from, and they're like, yeah, sitting in basically what is a quarters coverage, and you've got Davis and the safety kind of playing inside out on Irvin over there, and he just yeah roasted him. I mean, ultimately, the game I think turned on a couple of key on a couple of key plays. One is those initial interceptions to open the game. Going up twenty-one-zero is is pretty much a death knell for most teams, and it wasn't for Dallas. They weren't they managed to call themselves back, but that that first young touchdown pass where they were able to get the the fumble recovery and then come back and score, I thought was really really pretty for a couple of reasons. One. This is one instance where you do get to see the brilliance of Mike Shanahan, the play caller, because that play that they scored the touchdown on was set up by their opening play. It looked very, very similar. You have the split back, you have the fake power run, but now this, and you'd have the same backside slant, but now this time, instead of throwing that slant, Steve Young pumps, hitches, turns to the backside and hits Ricky Waters on a wheel route. And both both action, both the play action and the pump fake holds that linebacker and Waters is just gone. And and this is the integrated play calling that really good play callers have, where it's not just one play after another. It's plays that key off of one another that look very similar, but that yep. do very, very different things. And even in 94, Mike Shanahan was calling plays like that. And the Niners were able to score and it looked beautiful. Um, and and it, it's one of those things where it's like, that's where that offense looks really advanced even though they were running a split back, you know, power <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And that was, I think one of the plays too, like one of the throws where you really see, I think what, what defined the way that I think both Montana and young in a lot of ways, like what made them great as throwers, like neither of them necessarily had the strongest arms, but they were so accurate and precise with that. And, and the ability to throw with touch and like throw these very catchable balls. And like, that was such a perfect example of it because it's just this nice soft throw, dropping it in over the top, uh, hits him perfectly in stride, like couldn't be better ball location on that throw. And that was just kind of the thing that, that really separated those two guys as passers. I feel like Steve Young said in his book that he didn't really feel like he unlocked as a quarterback until he started throwing blind where he would, he would used to have to see a player and then throw it to him. And then when he started playing for the 49ers, uh, Bill Walsh basically said, no, you have to trust that he's there. You basically have to throw to a spot. And that means that you don't have to see over the line necessarily. You have to confirm your coverage but once you confirm your coverage, you know he's going to be open because he's going to run the route we tell him to, and you just have to get it to that spot. Yep. And so he starts throwing blind, and I feel like that's why he has such beautiful passes uh, with that Jerry Rice fade that he threw the touchdown to and the oh, wheel route. Yeah, it's like money. I mean, he's throwing those, and he just, he's throwing to a spot because he knows he's going to be there. Um, I think the other part that was a huge swing was that missed field goal that Dallas had when they drove down to the 10 and then, and then missed the field goal. Yeah, got to love right before that. Fucking running the ball on third and 10. Even Madden, even like, it, again, in 1994, Madden is like despondent at this. He like, called it a give up a play. give up play. Yeah. <laughs> Madden just like couldn't fucking believe. Like, did they just run on third and 10, like down here in, in scoring range? Like, what are they doing? And yeah, end up missing. I mean, that was their, their chance, right? To really get back yeah. in it. If they could have uh, managed to get in the end zone, like on that. Uh, possession especially like yeah it's a much different game the rest of the way but yeah you make that just 
horrible, horrible decision to run the ball on third and 10 and then follow that up with a missed field goal. It's just like, oh man, yeah, it was, it's brutal to overcome something like that. Yeah, it really is. And, and on it, so the pro football reference has this great EPA kind of play by play where they give you the expected points before a play and expected points after a game. And so you're able to find the EPA per play for each one of these. And I went back and looked at the EPA for each one of these plays and the third worst play in this game was that play right there was the missed field goal as a result of running. Uh, and the two before the two, the only two plays that were worse in terms of EPA. In other words, the, the only two other plays that cost the Cowboys more points than the decision to kick that field goal were interceptions. One of which directly led to points. Yeah. Cause uh, it was a big six. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a rough sequence for them. I, I feel like this game would have been very different if they had managed that better and, and been able to, come away with I mean at least some points but obviously like you you don't get a ton of opportunities to get down there right you always want to be able to maximize those chances and you come away with a touchdown on that drive and it's just a much different game the rest of the way so the final turning point is one that I got lots of tweets about when people found out that we were (laughs) reviewing the 94 championship game and that was the non-call against Deion Sanders in the fourth quarter against Michael Irvin lots of people were saying it was a pass interference I actually uh, told a buddy of mine who's a Dallas Cowboys fan, uh, not Richard, incidentally, a different friend of mine who's a Dallas Cowboys fan, uh, that we were reviewing the game for the podcast, and he immediately wrote back, it was P.I. Like, that was his, his immediate text back. I didn't see any P.I. I don't know what they're talking about. It was, so this was, of course, in the fourth quarter. The Cowboys are down by 10 at this point. It's 38-28, and they are driving down the field. The game has felt like it's turned at this point towards the Cowboys, and they're able to get their offense moving. And at this point, Dion is on Michael Irvin and the ball is deep and you've got Dion Sanders who basically kind of puts an arm bar out and impedes the arm a little bit and the ball kind of comes over Dion's head on the right side and falls uh, in front of him and it doesn't get a call. I think it probably was P.I. Look, would it probably get called now? maybe i think even in 1994 that's here's the thing that i that that makes me more okay is so one like that's a a good move by dion to begin with right so you a lot of times on on those deep vertical routes down the sideline what you want to do as a corner be able to do is is really squeeze them to the sideline right you want to kind of get on top of them a little bit and that does in most cases involve kind of getting an arm out there right making a little bit of contact you're not being overly aggressive with it. You're not shoving the dude out of bounds or something like that, right? But you kind of just get control, have have a feel for him there. And and that allows you to kind of stay on top of it and prevent him from getting back inside of the catch point. Um, what Irvin does, and what this is what Irvin, this is why 49ers fans fucking hate Irvin, is Irvin sells shit. Lifts so his arms. The arm is there. Was he reaching out and like, clearly like with an arm bar that was like going to prevent his arm to, to go down. No, but Irvin sells it. He tries to come up and bring his arm up through Dion's arm. So basically Irvin was like the original Harden. Yes. 100%. Uh, he was the football Harden. He was the football. James uh, Harden. And it's like, look, man. And I guess if you're going to use that logic, maybe you say, okay, well like fucking technically you got the contact and maybe you should throw the flag. But at the same time, it doesn't feel good rewarding that. So I, I totally agree. Now, the other thing, too, is that the game, that, that, that wouldn't have resulted in a score necessarily, and they were still down by 10. 
So a lot would have had to have happened for that game to change. But I do think that non-call was was a bit of a turning point. But it wasn't so much so that it would have like it wasn't like they were going to take the lead with that in the end zone or something like. That. It is funny to contrast that though with the call that Rice basically got just by asking for it. Yep. up the sideline, there was fucking nothing no, there. No, there was no contact at all. Nothing whatsoever. at all. And, and he Rice starts the ref. bitching about it, and he fucking gets the flag, and it's just like, oh man, that is a, a star call there. And I can't say that the refs were inconsistent in letting them play because whoa, were there a lot of late hits? And a lot of late swings and Dude. a lot of things where you're like, like, and it happens like right in front of the ref and the ref does not throw a flag. And there were punches thrown in front of a ref and there were, there were not flags thrown. And you're just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. It was just, it was, uh, it was different, man. They, you see court, I mean, both quarterbacks getting hit much later than, than is acceptable today. Like there would have been what felt like a dozen flags for roughing had and the one roughing that they called was complete horseshit it was a hit to the uh, head yeah it was like ricky jackson coming by swiping kind of in the direction of him barely like grazing the helmet it was a 2019 uh, penalty yeah it, that one was like that one and that was a 2019 penalty that you'd be pissed about still uh and like that of all the one gets called but like there there were so many other plays like there was this one where aikman's uh, like is able to flip it out to his check down and he's almost all the way down on the almost ground. to his yep. knee and then get somebody coming in right after that and just like bending him the other direction looks super brutal but it was like yeah he got the shit beat out of him in that game Bryant Young is one of my favorite 49ers and he played a really good game against the Cowboys and there was one time where I was like damn I don't remember Bryant Young being that mean because it was he took two steps Hit Aikman, yeah, right? And that's then dropped him. It, it was well after. Like there was like a, it felt like they had like a five second grace period. Yeah. Just like if you can get there, man, fucking get him. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a different game, man. It was way yeah. different. And I, I for one, I'm kind of glad that quarterbacks don't have to go through that, and that we can have these quarterbacks yeah. play for quite a bit longer. But oh man, they, they were the refs were letting them play. Yes. And and in that context, I think the PI is not as egregious. I think if we look at that PI with, with current eyes, it, it, it probably is. In 1994, I think it's dubious. But the way those refs called the game, I think they were letting them play. I think another call, too, and this is uh, I'm interested. To, we talked about this like very briefly before, but we kind of saved a lot of it for this one. As I was going through, so uh, this also could have been potentially a big turning point is uh, the force fumble from Eric Davis. So the first drive, first Cowboys drive, you get the pick six from Eric Davis. The second one ends with Eric Davis forcing a fumble on Michael Irvin. And I don't know, man, I think like maybe not pre, maybe not 2019, like 2018, I guess, uh, that might still be a fumble, but like 2017, 2016, when we were like peak convoluted catch rule stuff, like, there's a really good chance that was just an incomplete pass. I mean, he, he basically goes up in the air to catch it, comes down, hasn't really had, I mean, he's got clearly got possession, feet down, all that stuff, but definitely hasn't started to make a move or anything like that. And immediately Davis is in there to knock it out. And my first thought was like, should that have been incomplete? Like, and nobody, and it seems like, you know, at that point it was very much accepted to be a forced fumble, like uh, Madden or anybody, like nobody mentioned it. Right. And nobody was like, Oh, should yeah. this actually be a fumble? So it seemed like it, it was obvious for that time for that era. But yeah, that was, I was like, I don't know if that's a catch today. Like, and, and if, and if all of a sudden they don't turn the ball over, I think that would have been a third down conversion for them. Yep. 
keep the drive alive, get them out closer to midfield. And, you know, at that point it's only seven, nothing. And if they rebound and score on that drive, then again, we're looking at a completely different game. Um, but I thought that one was interesting. Yeah, I, I think ultimately those turnovers were important, and Eric Davis, I think, played a good game in the first eight minutes or so, but I think overall the player of the game for me was Deion Sanders. Like, I, I don't think that team wins without what Deion provides for, schematically, the ability to cover Harper and erase him and then let Eric Davis and Cook cover Michael Irvin and then switch off on Irvin. And I tweeted out a couple of clips of the back and forth they had because there was a play where, I mean, Michael Irvin is a strong dude and he pushed the hell out of Deion Sanders. And Deion was quick enough and savvy enough to kind of grab the jersey a little bit and come back and knock the ball with his offhand. Yeah. Um, he was always so good at knocking the ball with his offhand. Because he got, I mean, Irvin in, on the, basically the exact same route yeah. earlier in the game. Destroyed Eric Davis. Got it. Yeah, he got the push off on. He got one on Dion too. Gave up. Uh, uh, yeah, catch. Right. Uh, you got a catch on Dion there, and it was kind of the same. It was one of those comeback routes, and yeah, he's he got him a little bit more twisted at the line of scrimmage. Dion was was up there trying to press, didn't get a good jam on him, and and so yeah, he was able to use that again, that push at the top of the route and get it. And yeah, Dion like was back in this one and and played it so much better. Gets in there, gets his hand on it. Yeah, to me, one hundred percent like. With, without question watching this game, it was so easy to say Deion Sanders was the best player in this game. Yeah. Like, Hands I, I think very, very Even clear. return to punt. Yeah. Uh, Deion, the returner, is always great. But it was just um, the way that he moves, like the, the speed that he plays on the interception even. He's kind of like it, it best maybe even around the time and the ball's thrown completely and then just blows by gone yeah. like it has yards of separation to get on top of Irvin and and go pick this pass off um yeah he was just kind of on another planet compared yeah. to these other guys yeah and it's so interesting now when when we look at this game through the lens of what we know about football now or, or what we think we know right now the analytics are telling us that the cornerbacks are really what help you out and when you think of the way this defense was constructed, yes, absolutely, they had players who could rush the passer, and they did close the game out with a couple of really big sacks. Yep. Um, and and those pass rushers, I think, were were good in their time. But if you hadn't have looked at the box score, would you have known more than like one or two of those pass rushers, like Tim yeah. Harris? You know, Ricky right? Jackson, Tim Harris. Maybe. I forgot. Ricky Jackson would be the one. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, obviously you knew the interior guys, but the edge players that they had there. Yeah, Ricky Jackson was the only one that was yeah. like, okay, yeah, no, I obviously. And and honestly, Eric Davis goes on to have a good career. He ends up going to Carolina, and and you know he wasn't like to Dion's level, but he was not terrible, and he had a couple of good plays at the beginning of the game. Um, so really, it was the corners that yeah. that really sealed this game. I think for the 49ers, both early in terms of the turnovers, and then able to schematically give them an advantage and shut down some of their uh, really good players late that, that really allowed the, the defensive line time to, uh, to get to, to Troy Aikman and poor guy destroy him God. over and over and over again. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think, you know, top to bottom, it was a good defense, but those corners, man, really, really did something. Dion was fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I think like of players of that era that I would like to go back and like watch more of like Dion is probably right up there at the yeah. top of the list. Like, yeah. um, just yeah, again, so much more athletic and and just like he, he just looked 
better than everybody else. And, yeah. and he was going again, going against a hall of famer and, and Michael Irvin and, yeah. and like a very talented, very, very good Cowboys offense at that time. And yeah, I think it was just stark how much better he looked a big piece of me. I, I would love to like rock more Niners Dion gear, but a big piece of me is like one year, not even a full season. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it was a Super Bowl year, but like, I'm always going to lean more towards like Steve young or Jerry sure. rice because even though those 94 jerseys are my absolute favorite, I love the throwbacks. I love the all-white throwbacks the team uses now. Yep. Um, it's still always like one year. He, he, I think, identifies as a cowboy. And even though he should started with Atlanta, right? But he still... I think, didn't he play the most seasons with I think Atlanta? so. Because he only played, uh, I think, like four or five years or whatever with Atlanta. Not even that much, maybe. And then he went to the Niners. And then he went to the Cowboys. And then he went to Baltimore for a couple of years. After he took two years off. Just for shits and giggles, yeah. right? Takes a couple years off and then comes and finishes his career with Baltimore because why not? Yeah, again, one of the, just those like rare athletes that, yeah. like I, I think, and I kind of thought this at points too about, uh, about various players, but it just like how, like these guys clearly wouldn't be good today, right? Like there, a lot gets made, like, you yeah. know, athletes are just, the, you continue to get better. Each era is like better athletically. Um, and, and so while I think there are definitely some players that could kind of make that jump, right? Dion would still be good. Dion is one where yeah. I, I have very little doubt that he could peak Dion would be inserted in today's game and be every yeah. bit as good. I think there were, there, so that's an interesting question. Were there any players that you saw from this game that you think would still be able to succeed in today's NFL? Dion is obviously one of them. Was Dion, there anyone else? I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, Rice and Irvin would probably still be fine. Um, Irvin, you know, his game was more physical and he, his, like from a size standpoint fits what we think of as yeah. a big receiver still today. So I think like that, that element and his ability to be physical and get open in the intermediate area and stuff like that. And Jerry Rice actually work. did it in close right. to the modern sure. era. Jerry I mean, Rice did it for uh, yeah. a million years. So yeah, I don't think there's a lot of question about that one. The player for me is Ricky Waters. I think Ricky Waters yeah. would succeed in today's NFL. Yeah. I mean, you saw him split out a lot and motion a lot in this game, and he was running routes. He went, he ran that wheel route. He scored a touchdown on that wheel route, and he was fast. I mean, he hit the hole real quick. And, and so he's a player, I think, that could succeed in today's NFL. You know, surprisingly, I did not go in expecting this at all because we hear so much about how offensive line right now as yeah. is like has such a dearth of talent. Like we need more good offensive linemen and, and it, it makes you kind of feel like this is the worst era for offensive linemen that we've had. I don't know, man, looking at, at these guys and, and it could have been like, granted that there, there's some weird things with like this camera angle and you have the field that was just a disaster. And so it, it it's possible like some of those things just make it look a bit more sluggish and hectic than, than it really would be if you were to like watch an, a different game, watch the Super Bowl or something on a, on a better field. But the offensive linemen in this game, you know, you look at Dallas and, and again, supposed to be one of the best offensive lines maybe in NFL history. And they were just all huge. Yeah. Like they don't move very well. Yeah. And, and I think that like they would really struggle um, from just like the little bit that I saw. And it's like, I, I don't know that they would be, 
very good in today's game. I agree with you. Remember the, I forget the lineman's name, but he had an issue with his helmet and I think his face mask was coming off. And so he had to come off the field and, and they put, I guess, like Ron Stone or someone in his place. This is a Cowboys offensive lineman. But I just looked at his body composition and he just looked ginormous. Could yeah, you imagine? All huge, like probably all three, 30, 40, 30, 40. Yeah. Could you imagine Aaron Donald going up against oh my God. someone like that? They, yeah. they would have no chance. No, it would it would be over. I mean, you saw even um, you know Bryant Young, Bryant who was Young, uh, you know a, why had a, such a, a good quick game. player. Like, yeah, he was able to use quickness against those guys a lot to be able to get in the backfield and like make plays around the line of scrimmage and and get pressures. And uh, yeah, I, I think that was the one thing that I was surprised. I did not expect to come away thinking like, man, those offensive linemen yeah. might get just torched if they were playing today. So when you think of the aftermath of the game, were there any takeaways from the game where you're like, you know, kind of with, with the power of hindsight that you're like, man, this, this, was, this was something that you noted where you're like, oh, well, this, the, the game had a larger impact than you thought it would. Or was it just like this singular moment in time where you're like, oh, that was fun. Yeah, I think it was just fun. I, I mean, I think it would be, you know, I, I definitely would like, I think we might do this at least one more time. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes, uh, for more than that. But yeah, I think it would, it's, you know, it's, it's good to go back and really, again, kind of challenge these thoughts that you have that are about things that happened so long ago, right. That you really don't remember as well as you would like to think that, you no, I sure didn't. Um, and and so like, yeah, being able to go back with the benefit of hindsight and, and kind of the knowledge that you have now compared to what you were at when you watched these games initially, I think is a really fun thing to do. And and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to go back. I'm hoping that like, I didn't have any of those moments in this game where it was just like, you know, I joked about rice with, with the drops there, but no, no moments where you're like something earth shattering where you're like, Oh my God, my childhood beliefs are just crumbling right now around me. I thought this player was amazing and he just was terrible. Like didn't have any of those moments yet. Um, but I think it would be, you know, it would suck kind of if that, if that ended up happening from watching one of the games, but it's, it's, Fun, too, to see just, like, how much things have evolved in 25 years, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's such a different game in so many ways. For me, it was really in doing some of the research for this to, to get the context for the season and the game. And seeing, I actually read an article on ESPN Insider about the salary cap woes the Niners got into not too long after this. I mean, once you get to 98, 99 you get to a place where the Niners are having to really make some really serious and drastic salary cap decisions. And it's just interesting to think that this game, while yes, they won a Super Bowl and they went out and bought a defense was the beginning of, you know, what, what I call the decade of darkness because of the salary cap issues that they put themselves in as a result of trying to buy these players. Um, and they eventually lost the draft pick over it because they circumvented salary cap rules. And, and so just the, the idea that this, Super Bowl win validated their freewheeling ways, which ultimately led to, you know, 10 years of being shitty at football after, you know, 16 to 20 years of absolute dominance. It's wild looking at those uh, drafts immediately after this is starting in 95 and then kind of looking over the next several years. I mean, they get obviously Owens is the one big, big hit that you get that comes in 96 um, but you look at the rest of these and there's like some decent players mixed in there. Like, um, you know, RW McCorders was okay for a little bit. Jeremy Newberry was, you know, a solid center Jeremy for quite Newberry a while. Was okay. McCorders. Um, once he moved to safety, I guess. Yeah. But he at least, he, he at least like played, he had a career, right? right? right. 
you cannot say that for all these guys. And and like the the next time that I think you really get a player that that is like really pretty good is probably in 2000. I would I would probably lump Julian Peterson yeah uh, in that category, but yeah, just a whole hell of a lot of bad drafts um for many years yeah. immediately after this. Yeah. It was it was a it was a combination of those two things I think that made the Niners so bad for so long and then you know, we we get to closer to where we are now when when we're in that middle of the the pack and seeing if we can get better with one of the yeah. Shanahan's going back to the roots but let's do it all right i think that does it for this week's edition of the better rivals podcast thanks for jumping in the delorean with us and, and going back down memory lane we'll probably do this one more time next week uh and then it's probably going to be close to july where we start doing some of our off-season content and we've got some ski months stuff planned and then once we get in a training camp and the preseason man there's there's no off-season start drinking that tea david preseason my least favorite point of the season oh yeah it's yeah. uh yeah it's like it's like dry humping but not nearly as fun. And the exact same amount of work. For yeah. <laughs> Treat them just like any other game. It's fantastic. Oh, my God. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. You can always catch me at Better Rivals on Twitter. David, where can they follow you? It's going to be at PFF underscore David. And, you know, this might be the end of the, the Warriors era. Who the hell knows what happens? So at least for one more time this season, and hopefully for a game seven, go Dubs. Go Dubs.